This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. Canada does have a National Indigenous Residential School Museum. And my guest today is Lorraine Brenda Daniels. And Lorraine is currently the executive director of the National Indigenous Residential School of Canada. But she's also a member of Long Plain First Nation. She is a mother of three children, a grandmother of 10 grandchildren, and a great grandmother of seven. She is the second oldest in a family of 11 siblings. Lorraine currently resides in Portage La Prairie. Her parents are first-generation survivors that went to the former Portage La Prairie Indian Residential School. And Lorraine Daniels is a second-generation survivor who went to three residential schools, Brandon for grade two, Sandy Bay Indian Residential School for five years, and the Bertle Indian Residential School for one year. Now, for grade 10 and 12, Lorraine left residential school and lived in a private home for those two years. Lorraine Daniels, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, Lorraine, before we get into anything um, about your background, which we want to, 10 grandchildren and a great-grandmother of seven, what do they call you? They call me uh, Cuckoo. Cuckoo? Yeah, short for Cuckoo. Cookum, okay, all right, um, and it, and all of them, whether they're grandchildren or great grandchildren, they use the same uh, term of endearment. Yeah, yeah, it's um, Ojibwe um, for great grandmother. It's uh, Aniku, but I, I just they all call me Cookum, and I'm okay with that. Okay, no, that's that's fantastic. And and so, do you get a chance to spend a lot of time with them? Are they are they around you a fair bit, or are they spread out across the the province or the country? The majority of them were uh, they had moved to Kelowna. But they're they're back now. They're they're just in the process of moving, and right now, um, a third of them are at my house right now. <laughs> I spend time with them. Um, uh, right now, I have my daughter and my my grandkids at the house because uh, they're in the process of moving and eventually get their own place. But it's good to have them at the house. Yeah, for sure. So, Lorraine, let's talk a little bit about it. We're going to obviously spend a lot of time talking about your role at the National Indigenous Residential School Museum of Canada. I would have to say that a lot of people probably listening to this podcast aren't even aware that we have a museum of Canada. But let's talk about your your life journey. You you obviously were a second generation survivor, and I talked about that in the introduction. When you graduated from, I think it was Michael Meehan, or Arthur Meehan, I'm sorry, Arthur Meehan High School. What got you involved? You know, you decided to pursue a little bit of a financial background. What What made you, what got you interested in that? I, I think because I liked working with numbers. That was kind of my, my interest in, in high school. And uh, I think I spoke to somebody when I was in the private home. Um, I He talked a little bit about accounting and bookkeeping and it, it got my interest. So that's how I got started. Um, I lived in the PAW for a while. I worked in an accounting office for about 12 years, maybe. And, and then I, 
I decided that I could do a little bit more with, I could do more than just uh, working with numbers. I decided I would go back to school and do something different. Yeah. And I just, we're going to talk about that, what you did different, but I, I just want to ask you, Lorraine, when you took your grade of grade 10, 11 and 12, I guess that's three years, you left residential school and lived at a private home. What was the process involved for you to get involved uh, or to, to live in that private home? Before I left Sandy Bay, it only went up to grade nine. I was about 14 at the time, and um, they um, gave us some forms to fill out. And without my parents' consent, I filled out the form. There was um, three different decisions that I had to come up with. One was to go back to a residential school, which would have been in Winnipeg, in Sunaboya, or go home and live in my community, or, or live in a private home, which was in Portage. And so I chose to live in a private home because at the time I was um, into sports and Long Plain didn't have any kind of organized sports. And it would have been difficult for me to come into to town to to be involved in sports because at the time my parents didn't have vehicle. And so I chose to live in town. I, I lived in a very uh, loving home. Uh, I was very uh, blessed to, to be with a family that were very caring and and uh, was part of the family. And so I, I chose to live there thinking that I would go home on weekends. That didn't happen because they still treated us like we were in residential school, the government. So I would only go home on during Christmas holidays and summer holidays. So um, I stayed there for the three years and uh, I um, got involved in, in sports and Arthur Meehan. And I, I was selected as a sports reporter for Arthur Meehan. And it kind of got me out of my, my shyness and, and also the, the shock of being institutionalized for seven years. You know, it was, a, it was a difficult transition for me, but I think sports helped pave the way for me to, to get involved in the high school. Yeah. 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 What kind of sports did you like? I, I was just about in everything. I, I learned to play hockey in residential school and I continued on with that. I raced like long distance and short distance. I even did hurdles, even though I'm short, I'm five foot one. <laughs> yeah, baseball, uh, just whatever sports. I, I was very competitive and I, I just love sports. And I think that's what kept me in school. I, I, I love sports and uh, I, volleyball, basketball. We even, had, we even played basketball in, in, in high school. So I'm five foot one and I still love, yeah, I just tried my best. <laughs> Good for you. Now, love the attitude and all the competition and all that, uh, Lorraine, for sure. Lorraine, just to clarify, you left residential school in Portage for grade 10, 11, and 12. Did you live with a non-Indigenous family? Yes, I did. And and can I just ask the, the notion again that you thought you could go away on weekends, did they have to deliver the message to you as as part of that family to say, I'm sorry, Lorraine, you're not allowed or you cannot? I'm not sure what language they would use to say that you're not going back home this weekend. Yeah, yeah, they, they had to tell me that I, I couldn't go home on weekends. And I was okay with that because if I came in town and my mother was in town, then I, I got to see them. Yeah, no, interesting. So, so Lorraine, you, you spent a lot of time on the economic side, finance side. I mean, you've been long playing First Nation finance officer assistant. You talked about spending some time up in the paw. Then you said at some point that you wanted to go back to school because you thought you could make a, a, a difference. What got you thinking that that was an important thing for you to do to go back to school? And we'll talk about what you went back for in a second. I think every time I wanted to, to change careers, I, I decided to go back to school. And I felt I can do more with an accounting background or a bookkeeping background that I could offer more to, to my community. 
And so when I came back from university, I uh, applied for economic development officer in, in, in Long Plain. So I stayed there for, for seven years and I just enjoyed helping people. It uh, opened doors for me to work in different communities. I stayed for seven years in Long Plain and then I went to work for Dakota Ojibwe Community Futures and that really uh, opened doors for me too to teach small business development. So I did that for a number of years and it was always going back and forth. Like if I if I was going to change careers, then I'd go back to university to get to get that training and education to always improve myself and better myself so that I can have that background to do my job. So you went to uh, Laurentian University in Sudbury. And what did you study there? I studied law and justice and uh, native studies. I, I graduated and I decided to to come home because my, my parents were getting, getting older and wanted to be home. I think that was when I uh, applied for economic development and was able to, to, to do the work. Just curious to see, Lorraine, that you started to get interested in law and justice and native studies, which is a little bit of a, you know, not a pivot, but it's a change from numbers. You're talking about people, you're talking about human beings, human rights, and that sort of thing. Was there a reason that you started to feel that kind of pull to your career? I, I think because I wanted to know a little bit more about my my background. I took native studies. And at the time, I was interested in, in law and justice and then and was hoping to work in, in that area, but it, it never happened. And so with my background, I was able to, to get into economic development. And at the time, it, there was a position open, so I applied. And then you eventually went to the University of Winnipeg and Providence Seminary, uh, where you, I believe, got your master's in Christian educational ministry. Yeah. Tell me about that. After I left Long Plain, I was in economic development. For a number of years, I wanted to to change careers again, and and that was kind of one of my goals on my bucket list was to to get a master's degree. And I had become a Christian at the time and wanted to to be able to go to a faith based university and to be able to to see through through God's eyes and to be able to to help people. And that really helped me in, in my personal life as well as working in the community. I went back and worked for my community. I think at the time when I was going to university, I um, I was um, involved with, with my church in, in Winnipeg and, and did a lot of volunteer work and ministry work. When I came back to Long Plain, I was able to, to apply that. And I worked with Long Plain Ministries and worked under the leadership of a youth pastor. And we did Sunday schools and did some youth ministry work. And then I worked, I worked as well, too. So that was, I guess that was my passion was, was to, to work in youth ministry. And also carry that into my my own work as well, too, to be a, a blessing to the community and, and not just get it as work, but as a ministry work. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to explore that, but I, I want to make sure, Lorraine, part of my journey, and I know that I love that you talked about the fact that you're on a lifelong journey all the time. You want to learn, as do I. So please help me with one thing. When we talk about the word Indigenous residential school, I think I made a reference earlier on and I called it an Indian residential school. What is the correct language? They've changed it over the years. First it was Indian, Aboriginal, and now it's Indigenous. I guess the correct language now is uh, Indigenous. So we're Indigenous to the land, so it's it's Indigenous. Yeah. Okay. So, so when we look at, when I see something that is abbreviated IRS, 
that is for in uh, indigenous residential schools. That's the correct term. So, okay, please forgive if I, I apologize if I if I use the wrong language. When when I refer to the Portage Residential School, I I always use the old term because back then it was that was the term Portage in Indian Residential School. So I stick to that term because that's how it was the former Indian Residential School. But now it's like for the the National Indigenous Residential School Museum, we use the word indigenous. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. I mean, that's all part of the education which we, uh, which which you're involved in, Lorraine. I'm I'm interested to just uh, explore with you the fact that you went to, and I'll call it an indigenous residential school for your early grades. What was your sense of the, the purpose of religion at those times? If you think back on those years when you were in an indigenous residential school, I, I came from a really a very loving home. I, I lived with my my, I just want to go back to my 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 childhood years. I came to a very loving home. I lived with my grandparents, and my parents we all lived in the same house. And my parents, my grandparents, they followed the cultural teachings. They're very traditional, but they also embraced the Christian way of of, of praying, and and so they were able to blend the two. So I learned that as a child to be able to to follow those teachings and and both both teachings. I've done that throughout my life. And then when I was in residential school, I think I was able to accept the religion. Back then, I was, uh, I think I was a very serious child. I, I took religion seriously. Uh, I learned about who Jesus was and who God was. But in, in the residential schools, they, they didn't walk their talk. It was, it was you know, they're teaching, teaching us that God was a punishing God. We were for, forever being punished and not being loved. And I, I didn't catch that till I was older because I, I got punished as a child when I was in residential school. Uh, prior to that, like I, I came from a loving home, and you, you're you're sent to residential school, and and you learn a different lifestyle. You, you're not getting that that love that you, you you had at home. So there was a difference there, and yeah. So I, I and Lorena, I I'm just very fascinated at how you could look at you know growing up in a residential school where as you say you were learning about god but at that point god was a punisher because you were being punished all the time and yet you've been able to you know reconcile that experience with a more spiritual deeper experience of where you've embraced your christianity and you talk about it openly that i think is an incredible testament to you as a human being that you were able to sort of break through what you experienced as a child, and now you're you're really a teacher, if you will, and you're the executive director of the National Indigenous Residential School Museum. But you're really a teacher. How did you how did you reconcile what took place as a as a youth when God was a punisher or a taught? That's how they were taught. To today, talking about your your experience as God as a as a healer, I assume that would you would you use those terms? I think as a child, when you, when you learn. That foundation is firm. It's grounded in your life so that that stays with you throughout your life. So I, I did stray away for, for a while from the churches and as a teenager uh, and just, I guess, kind of mixed up. Eventually, I, I did go back to to church and, uh, and then I, I started with my Indigenous culture. I started questioning it because we were shamed. And even our language, you know, just it was uh, almost to the point where I was ashamed to to talk my language. So I lost a lot of my language, uh, but I'm regaining it now. I'm kind of getting lost here with the question. Well, no, you're you're talking. I'm, I asked you this sort of how did you reconcile? I mean, and that's just your your sense of when you were younger. 
And now you're, as you say, you've done a lot of understanding to gather your culture back. You're an Ojibwe woman. You're getting your language and your culture back, and and which was which was taken away from you. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's taken me over sixty years to to accept my culture. And the very first time that I that was an eye opener for me about the culture was when my mother passed away. They they had a, a traditional ceremony for her at the at the service, and uh, what they did was they had her in a casket, and as they were before they were going to take her out of the area, they. They had her side of the family are very traditional people, the long claw side of her family. And her nieces had these whistles that they use when they have their sun dances and they were dressed in their in their uh, outfits or regalia. And as they were um, moving her out before they moved her outside of the building, they uh, they were whistling and singing with these whistles and, and, and dancing. And that was the very first time that I accepted my culture. Sorry. No, Lorraine, I, and I, yeah, I apologize if I'm asking you to relive some of those very difficult experiences. So please accept my apology. It's not my intention to upset you, but I, I appreciate you. No, no yeah, I, I just, uh, there's just some days I can talk about it. And some days it's it triggers. Um, and uh, I, I just want to compare what I saw that day when a soldier dies and they, they fire the rifles as the casket is being moved. That's what I saw. She was a very respected and honored Indigenous woman in my community. And it really hit me that it's okay. This is okay. This culture is okay. Because in, in residential school, they prevented us from learning our culture, practicing it. And here that day, I was able to practice and participate in my culture. Lorraine, that is a very powerful uh, moment. And again, I, you know, thank you for sharing that. I think it's always a challenge when there are things that just, as you say, you have days that are better, days that are are more challenging. And so, so thank you for sharing. Yeah, so that was the kind of like a pivotal moment for me to accept my culture because I would question everything as I was learning about the culture. And the thing was, is this acceptable to God? Am I going to be punished for this? Am I going to hell for this? Is this a sin? So all that I questioned, is this the right thing to do? Because that was that was ingrained in me in residential school. Sin. Always sinning. You know, always being punished because that's a sin. And being especially in the Catholic Church, going to confession and and trying to find every little sin that you had as a child, you'd go to confession every week. Well, I swore 10 times, I, I, you know, like stuff like that. And trying to be perfect. You can't be perfect in this world because we don't live in a perfect world. So that was ingrained in me. And it, it's taken years to get that, to unlearn all that teaching that I got from the residential schools. But the key to, for myself in my healing journey is forgiveness. My faith has really helped me move through through my journey, my journey of healing. Yeah, you have a, a strong Christian belief, but it 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 does not today impact the fact that you're a proud Ojibwean woman. So you've got that kind of that blend, if I can say it that way. You've got that incredible blend. So let's talk a little bit, Lorraine, about 
the National Indigenous Residential School Museum of Canada. What's the, give us a bit of a history. How did it get started? It being the National Indigenous Residential School Museums of Canada. How did it get started? And how did you become involved in it? Just give us a bit of a timeline, please. When our current knowledge caper advisor, Ernie Daniels, was chief at the time, and uh, our current chair, Dennis Majus, I think he was on council, they, they decided to look at the land. The land was transferred over from Indian Affairs, so they were able to acquire the land and the, uh, the building. And, and Lorraine, just to give context, when was that? Can you give us a sense of when that was? I think it was back in the 80s. Yeah, because the Indigenous Residential School, I think it opened, what, in 1915 initially? Yeah, 1915, yeah, yeah. It shut down for a while, for 1970, 1975, it, it shut down. And I think it's just sat there for a while, and the Long Plain decided to, to acquire the land through Treaty Land Entolment through with Indian Affairs. Yeah. And then I had moved into employment and training at the time. And I had been there for about 12 years. And I was feeling burnt out because uh, I was working a lot of overtime and meeting deadlines. And uh, and I just wanted to, to start winding down because I was getting to my retirement years and thought that this would be a good job for me to, to take on. Ernie Daniels was an advisor to, to council, I think, at the time. And there had been people working here off and on. It, it wasn't open consistently. And so he asked me if I, I would uh, take over. So I, I did say yes, and I, I asked for a lateral transfer. So I, I got the job thinking it would be an easy job because um, it was a small museum and thinking that this will be an easy job to do and to set it up. And a little little did I know that that, that, that it was going to be turn into something more than what I had expected. Yeah. Well, and, and as you talk about your lifelong journey of learning, I mean, you're, you're teaching, but you're still learning. So, so Lorraine, I understand that in, in 2000, I just went onto your website just to get a bit of history. So in 2000, they renamed the building, the Rufus Prince building. Yes. And Rufus Prince was uh, obviously played a huge role in Long Plains. Just tell us a little bit about Rufus Prince. Rufus Prince. He was a World War II veteran, and he's he's done a lot of work with Long Plain as well as Dakota Ojibwe Tribal Council. He was instrumental in setting up the uh, Dakota Ojibwe Tribal Council as well as the policing, and a very well-respected uh, kid and just outspoken. He was also a resident school survivor that he attended school here, and so they uh, they named the building after him to, to honor him. Yeah. Yeah, and I you know just make a comment because I've heard this many, many times, Lorraine, from from other elders, uh, knowledge keepers, when they make reference to the fact that so many First Nations, Métis, Inuit men and women went to World War II to fight on behalf of Canada. And you think about the strained relationship that Indigenous peoples had with non-Indigenous peoples, and they were prepared to go stand side by side to fight for Canada. It's a, It's just an interesting observation because now I think it's a great opportunity to acknowledge people like Rufus Prince and many, many others who stood tall for this country called Canada. And that's one of the projects that we, we want to actually start it and it's 
kind of at a standstill because we have so many other things that we're working on and to have an area to to honor the veterans that went to war and, and uh, to have a, a place in the museum to honor them and acknowledge them. So that's one of the projects that we have going. So, Lorraine, when you look at the role that you are now overseeing as the executive director, one of the questions may be, why is it important to have a museum that focuses on the National Indigenous Residential Schools? To bring awareness as to what has happened in in the residential school era and to to educate people so that they can learn about the history because a lot of people are not aware of it. When we do have tours, we have survivors, elders that that come out and share their story. I think that the individuals, the groups that come out uh, need to to put a face to the residential school era and so that they they know, yes, this actually happened and uh, to hear stories firsthand and and then to go through the the tour to see we have a lot of displays we have um we have songs we have artifacts we have a lot of content we usually start off with a pre pre-contact pre-residential school and then we have the residential school era and then we're currently working on on uh, post-residential school and then we have where we're reclaiming and regaining our culture. We have we have regalia in there and uh, some drums uh, people have donated. The majority of the stuff that we have is uh, donated. The sort of the number of people, Lorraine, that would come to, to visit the museum, would they mostly be non-Indigenous Canadians? The majority of them are non-Indigenous. And we just had a group two weeks ago, the delegates from Taiwan. They were part of the, uh, the police and fire games that we had here yeah so they came toured there was about uh, 24 of them and we had uh, survivors come and share their story and elders and and they had a little barbecue for them so and had a taste of the indigenous cuisine that they have so yeah yeah and Lorraine the, the idea being that you are trying to create an educational experience for the visitors as you say to understand what the residential school process was about the history so you're talking a lot of artifacts but would people if they came through the building would they see an actual sort of example of what a school room would look like or is there a sense or their photographs of what you know the the sleeping accommodation would be tell me a little bit about what you mentioned artifacts and a lot of things what are what are people seeing when they come into the museum when when they go into the area where um, uh, the residential school Starts era starts. We have pictures of children that that are being taken to the to the residential school, either by truck, treated like cattle, going by boat, by plane. Uh, so it was all different types of of transportation for them. So the first room would would have that. Uh, also uh, pictures of of hair that was being shaved off and cut. And we also have a little mannequin child that has it's a replica of of hair. That was cut. The girl's hair was cut like you know how Dora doll looks like a Dora haircut. It was all they were all cut the same, same way. And 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 also uh, when you enter that room, there's the the mannequin has a towel wrapped around her head because this is my experience and a lot of other residents' cool experience. So I'm able to share that too for a firsthand story. So they would put DDT in the hair, and that's the story we tell. And there's also a picture uh, that was it was an, an original picture that was donated by a intergenerational survivor. His father had gone to to Brandon, and he donated the picture. And it's a very uh, dark 
picture picture of a priest where he has a strap and where he's hitting the the young the young boys. And then you go into the next room. There's a replica of a dining room to just contrast where the staff ate with the fine china, and where the children ate with uh, just plastic plates. And then the next room is we have a bed that was retrieved from the former Bertel Residential Schools. So we have that set up. Then we have pictures set up with the dorms where they have the beds and and the bunk beds. We are always looking for stuff like that, bunk beds and that are replicas of, of what we had. And then the, the, the last room is actually we have three other rooms. I usually explain what's in the hallway between the two doors. They were separated. The, the hallway was separated, the, the girl's side and, and the boy's side. So the upstairs would have been um, the dorms and the, the main floor would have been uh, where the, the common area or the playroom. So the boys on one side, the girls on one side. And then there would have been the um, probably uh, uh, rooms for staff where they could sleep or, or office space. And children weren't allowed in between those, in between the, the hallways. They were separated. They destroyed the family unit, I guess, where you're, if you had a sibling like a brother or sister, you weren't allowed to, to speak to them. But I think as the, the years went by, their, their rules started to relax. Yeah. And then you say there's three, sort of three rooms at the very end, Lorraine? Yeah, the, yeah, there was three more rooms I didn't talk about. One is a, a room that's dedicated to the children that never came home. There's a lot of, again, uh, there's artifacts in there and also pe- just people that have donated um, items. We had little shoes that were uh, gifted back in the day when they first discovered at 215 unmarked graves. We brought those in because it was kind of a rainy season and we have those in, in the room there and um, talk about the children that never came home. We have Chani Winjack, a historian there that was donated by Argyle High School, alternative high school. And then the then the room next door to it is uh it, it's a better it's a better story. It's the glee club that they formed here. Jack Harris back then was was the administrator and uh, they started up a glee club. Actually, I was part of the glee club. Uh, I was already living in town and I used to come here and just uh, socialize with the kids. And I uh, joined the glee club. The music director was was my science teacher in in Arthur Mian. So he would pick me up for. For practice or if we had to go out and we did fundraising we'd go out to the different towns and um, sing the fundraise to go to japan and that was my main reason was to go to japan <laughs> you, you were 15 or 16 16 at the time yeah wow yeah. went to uh, the world fair in osaka japan we stayed in tokyo most of the time and and uh, we went and sang at the uh, the canadian pavilion in osaka 70 quite an experience right yes yeah from a from a, a young girl from long plains yeah first nation um lorraine just on the glee club what what sorts of songs would you be learning would they be traditional songs or no they were just regular folk songs i guess there was one song they did sing in cree uh, the majority of the kids that were on the glee club were were from up north and most of them were cree so then there was a few children that were dakota and uh in Ojibwe, so it is a mixture. We actually got together last Orange Shirt Day, and, um, and we were able to get a hold of our music conductor. We came out and we did a little, did a few songs at Orange Shirt Day, and did a little reunion. So that was good. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that must have been great. And I can see the smile on your face. It means uh, it means a lot to you for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Lorraine, um, you mentioned Orange Shirt Day or National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which is the last day of uh, September, September 30th. Tell me a little bit about what does that what does that mean to you? And and you know, and then I'd like to ask you a second question of that is what would you like it to mean to non-indigenous peoples? I think it is it's a day of uh, reconciliation and to come out to honor the, the children that um, that were in residential school and, and the ones that never made it home. But also it, it's a it's a day to, to celebrate, to get together, both indigenous and non-indigenous. Because I think that's one of the things that I, I think is very important is that um, it is a day, but reconciliation is not a day or about a day for sure. So so what have you got going on? What do you got planned? So, so this year I wanted to do... Um, Something different, totally different. It's for everybody, not just not just the Indigenous people, but to come out and celebrate together. So this year is called the Healing Dance of Reconciliation. We've done a partnership with Portage Community Revitalization Corporation. And last year, they, uh, they organized a walk from the city of Portage, from City Hall, and all the way to, to the residential school here. And it just, oh, it just, uh, uh, it just, Fills me with joy because it, it was so good to see these people walking, just a sea of orange shirts. And we also had Dakota Ojibwe uh, Police Services. They they came in the front and they had their 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 vehicle and kind of like uh, being the front and guiding them. And it it, it was so beautiful to see. And uh, so we'll, we're doing that again this year. PCRC uh, is going to be doing the walk again. So they do that. It's called a, a reconciliation honor walk from City Hall to here. So they'll be escorted again by by the First Nation policing. And then we have our, our of course, our opening prayer and, and the welcoming remarks. We have uh, different delegates. We're hoping that they, they'll all show up and, and the mayor usually shows up too. Uh, so we have Mayor uh, Sharon Knox coming and our, our chief as well too. We have a guest speaker this year. She did a uh, a reconciliation uh, project with us, Kristen Lindblom. She's a professor at the University of Wisconsin. She came out this year with a group of seven of her students, and she wanted to give back to the to the community because her grandfather had ran ran the school for a couple of years, and she didn't realize the impact the recent schools have had on survivors. So her grandfather's non-indigenous. Yeah, he's non-indigenous. Yeah, and. and uh, she wanted to give back, so on a project, we uh, have a garden in the back. They bought, bought all the equipment, and so we have a raised garden in the back that they they worked on, and uh, and so uh, and then we also worked with them and 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 taught them some of our our cultural activities, uh, cultural uh, teachings. So we did that as well too, and uh, so they were here for a whole week. We worked on some of the things that we we. We did with them was um, did the healing garden. We did some activities like we did songs with them. They they did the washing of the tears at the end. They did some beading. They learned how to bead some some stuff, and they did uh, some kind of a, um, a sharing circle like a, a medicine wheel with one of the the elders. And they also heard one of the elders uh, share his story about his residential school experience. So that that's who will be doing the. Uh, we've invited her back to to come and to come and. That's interesting. Yeah. So she's an American. Actually, she's originally from from Portage, 
So oh, really? she's moved to Wisconsin. She's she, she's a teacher there, professor. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, so she does have. I mean, other than her grandfather, who was involved in this, in in as uh, you know, involved in the uh, residential school, she also has some. Being from Portage, she has some uh, some community roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, so you know, Lorraine, when I asked about what you're doing on the National Day for Tooth and Reconciliation, Orange Shirt Day, great explanation. Thank you so much. If people want to come. Do you, is there, is it just an open house Do they, should they, is they should be aware of anything? And, and if they do want to come, where should, should they go to city hall to be part of the walk or what would you advise on that day? We're, we're going to have a uh, save the date. Uh, we'll be posting it on, uh, we have a, we have a Facebook page. Uh, we also have the, the website for the walk. It's usually PCRC that, that organizes that for us. Okay. And PCRC is? Portage Community Revitalization Corporation. Okay. Yeah, they do a lot of work uh, with the uh, port area, a lot of projects, activities. And so, yeah, so they'll be organizing that. They also helped organize the dancing part of the, uh, that'll happen in the afternoon. So they've been able to get a Filipino dance troupe, and there's going to be about 20 of them. We also have a Ukrainian dance troupe that they organize as well, too. Wow. Uh, we've also been able to acquire a Métis fiddler, and then we have uh, jigging by by some some youth that that'll be doing that as well and then we'll have our indigenous dance troupe so it's it's all about dancing this year a healing dance of reconciliation healing and dancing dancing is, is this universal and everybody brings their unique style of dance their their cultural dance their regalia so i'm just uh really um looking forward to to see all the different types uh you know uh, dances and so that's going to happen in the afternoon. And uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to do the, the final one will be a dance of reconciliation, all nations. And uh, so they're either going to dance, probably dance in their regalia and all dance together, either in a powwow. Uh, we have a drum group and hopefully we'll have a round dance where everybody will join. And have, uh, the, uh, for for lunch, we also have this year, we, we've included, it's called Moli. Guacamole, they're um, Mexican, Mexican uh, food. So we're going to have, they've, we've always spoken to them. And also we, we have our indigenous cuisine. So it's going to be a, a little so. Yeah, a tremendous, uh, yeah, it sounds fantastic, Lorraine. I mean, it really sounds uh, incredible. And you mentioned that you've got a Facebook site and a website. Your Facebook site would just, would that be, if you went to somebody's listening saying, what's your Facebook, how would I find you on Facebook? Yeah. National Indigenous Residence School Museum. Okay. And then your website is? Again, it's the National Indigenous Residence School yeah. Museum. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So, so Lorraine, I, I want to sort of, you know, look at a couple of uh, things before we uh, find our off-ramp on this conversation. When I asked you what is going to happen, you gave a, a very detailed program of what you're planning for that day. W what do you hope that non-Indigenous people will take away from your museum, our museum. I don't know if I can say our, I apologize if I'm trying to, to say it. I mean, it's, but it's, I mean, the, you know, what, what do you want people to learn both from, and I don't know if you can tie in what they could learn from a journey through the National Indigenous Residential Schools Museum that you are, are overseeing and also the Day of Truth and Reconciliation. I don't know if those two can be tied 
together. But I'm interested to get your perspective of what you would like or your hope is that from non-Indigenous people, what would be their, what would they learn? What would you hope them that their takeaway would be? I think, I think for me, um, you know, sometimes we set invisible boundaries. Okay, you know, I'm scared to go there and, you know, I'm not going to go there. So to, to be a welcoming place, a warm place, to be inviting and, and that this is a place where you can come and learn and share uh, respectfully, just a, a safe place to come and learn about our culture, also about the, the dark era of residential school, and uh, that, uh, that we can all work together and that uh, there is hope for everybody that we can work towards, uh, walk together in unity uh, towards truth and reconciliation. It's, it's a hard truth, but it has to be told. And, and there's a scripture I, 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 I'm thinking about, uh, the truth will set you free. And my hope is that everybody will learn. I know, I know the, the the kids in school are 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 learning about about the residential school, and uh, we we've had um, families that come here, and the parents tell us that you know that their child is teaching them because they're learning it in school. So which is good. It's it's all about educating the public. This is what happened, and not to take it away, and not to blame yourself because it happened back in the day when the government of the day and the churches of the day thought they were doing right, but it wasn't. It, it was harming the, the indigenous people and that, that we're all free to, to live in this world and to, to live and practice our cultures like around the world, the indigenous people around the world, they, that it's okay to practice that culture, to, uh, uh, to be accepting. And, and it's all about, we're all the same. You know, we all have, uh, we all have a, Everyone has a spirit, you know, and, and just to, to move forward, I guess, to to um, celebrate. I guess this is about celebrating life and that uh, we can move past the, the damage that was done. But there's but to be aware that there's still people that are still hurting and there's some people that have been able to to overcome. But there's always that it stays like for myself, you know, you get triggered to help one another. You know, uh, to lift each other up and not to to uh, keep a person down, but to be able to say, how can we help? What can we do to to work together to make the world a better place? Yeah. And for somebody who, as a young student in a residential school system, to be told that you're a sinner, that things are bad, that there's all of this negativity, for you to be able to leave a message of hope and a journey that we can walk together and become human beings and respect one another. I can't think of, uh, of a, a more powerful way to say thank you for taking some time to share your personal journey and what you're, what you're doing as the executive director of the National Indigenous Residential School Museum of Canada. Um, thank you for, for your conversation. Thank you for your time, your wisdom and knowledge. And uh, I look forward to the opportunity of visiting you and visiting the museum and having uh, an opportunity to walk through it. Yes, and thank you for inviting me to to share my thoughts and uh, to be able to to share what we're what we're doing out here in uh, in the in the museum. And hopefully that will will have more more tourists, more visitors, and to come out and uh, just learn learn firsthand what what happened here and and you know it's it it was from a place of hurting to now it's a place of healing 
and to 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 bring healing through uh, the reconciliation day uh, that people will learn and and just come out and celebrate with us through dance and 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 eating. People like to eat and people like to dance and you know it just lifts lifts up people. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does, and I appreciate that. So. Lorraine Daniels, thank you so much for uh, this conversation. I really appreciate uh, all you've done. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Humans on Rights. A transcript of this episode is available by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by Buffy Davey. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance, and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.